Welcome to the panel on RNZ National. Lovely to be with you. For the first time on the programme, we have Max Harris. Also with us is Janet Wilson today. And can I tell you that teeth and bad driving, they've taken over. Taken over the text machine. That's all you're talking about. I have five broken teeth. No point in seeing a dentist, says one. I've never been able to afford it. It would certainly not be able to afford fixing them. I might as well believe I could buy a house. Uh, the idea of seeing a hun- an hygienist once a year, just a nice idea. Dave says... He's angry. Wallace, you are so out of touch with reality. Dentistry has been hell for me in New Zealand. It is a killer. Please get out of the quarter lounge, says Dave. And gosh, regarding driving, uh, Tracy says, Wallace, our driving is terrible, aggressive, lacking in courtesy, common sense, no indication, lack, lacking following distance, and the number one offence, not staying on your own side of the road, especially blind corners, Another one here, I have been to 87 countries and I can honestly say that New Zealand drivers are the worst, impatient, tailgating, risk-taking and lacking common sense. Goodness gracious me. You can text us 2101, email the panel at rnz.co.nz. First up on the programme though, Cabinet is meeting today to review vaccine mandates, vaccine passports and the traffic light system, though any decisions will be announced on Wednesday. The traffic light system must be no more restrictive, quote-unquote, than needed, and mandates won't be as necessary after the first Omicron wave, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern says. But mask use will remain important. And today there have been 14,463 new community cases of COVID-19 reported today and 1,000 people in hospital, nine deaths. Ministry of Health says with us is University of Canterbury COVID-19 modeller, Professor Michael Plank. Professor Plank, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. So what changes are you anticipating this week, if any? Uh, I mean, I think it it sounds like the the vaccine pass system uh, is going to be in for a a significant update. Um, Exactly what that's going to look like, I'm not sure, but certainly I think um, vaccine passes are less effective now as a tool for reducing transmission uh, than they were when they were first introduced. Um, And there are a few different reasons for that. I mean, one is Omicron um, and vaccines, although they're still very, very effective at stopping people getting severely ill, they're less effective at at stopping people from catching the virus um, and passing it on. Um, so the use of vaccine passes as a, as a way to try and reduce transmission is, um, is, is less than what it used to be. Yeah, I see this morning uh, epidemiologist uh, Rod Jackson, he told Morning Report that we should keep them until the Omicron wave has passed. Do you agree? Uh, I mean, I think it, you know, it makes sense to keep them until we're past the peak, which is you know, pretty much now, hopefully, or, or within the next week or so. Um, as I say, I think, you know, if we're going to have these sort of interventions, we, they need to be evidence-based and they need to be contributing towards a, a clear public health goal. Um, you know, that was the case, that they were, they were contributing to reducing transmission um, because unvaccinated people were much more higher risk to, to, to spread the virus to other people around them. That's less so with Omicron, and it's also increasingly less the case um, because a lot more people have had the virus now. So there's a lot of those unvaccinated people that have actually been infected um, and have some immunity now from prior infection. And yeah, and I'll bring the panellists very shortly. One uh, one statistic really stuck out at me today, uh, Professor Blank, and that was, I was, I was quite amazed by this, that uh, over one 
million New Zealanders still need to get their booster? How exposed are we still as a country uh, having seen and having heard that stat? Yeah, I absolutely agree. You know, we, we, you know, we really want to get those booster rates as high as possible. Um, and it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's surprising, really, that there are people who are quite, you know, clearly quite um, willing to get vaccinated and they've had their first two doses, but they haven't yet, you know, got around to getting that booster for whatever reason. And, and certainly the more people we can get and the, and the better we can get that message out that the booster is essential, um, then the more protected we'll be as a population. No, uh, Janet Wilson, let's bring you in. Oh, Professor Plank, I'm really interested in this uh, vaccine pass system and cha- possible changes to it. Um, would you um, attribute some of those changes to the fact that many people aren't actually using um, or, or checking in now when they go out? Uh, what factor do you put onto that? Um, yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's probably a bit patchy, but, but most places I go, uh, to be honest, you know, are very good actually at checking vaccine passes. Um, so I don't know what it's like in other parts of the country, but, uh, but when I go out in Christchurch, generally, yeah, generally people are, are checking those vaccine passes and, um, you know, everyone's happy to show them. So, um, yeah, I don't think it's that. I think it's more, you know, what is the goal of the vaccine pass system? Is it um, is it contributing to to our public health goals? Is it having a, a material effect on the number of cases that we're that we're seeing going forward um, past right. the peak of this Omicron wave? Max. Yeah, Professor Plank, I suppose one question I have is um, when there's so much that's unknown about long COVID in particular, uh, isn't it better that we err on the side of caution uh, and perhaps keep the vaccine mandate system in place, uh, you know, to avoid unexpected further waves down the track? Um, I mean, yes, I completely agree with the need for caution and the, and the, and the uncertainty around long COVID. And to be, to be clear, I, I'm I wouldn't recommend getting rid of, uh, of measures like masks and, and other measures that we have to try and control transmission. You know, we need good ventilation. We need to be able to um, have contact outdoors as much as possible. We need to make sure there's really good support for people to stay home if they have symptoms or if they test positive. So all of those things are really important to reducing transmission. And reducing transmission is the goal, and that helps reduce long covid um, but I think the case for saying vaccine passes are a part of that is is getting less over time um, because of those issues that I've mentioned, weight plus waning immunity, um, and the fact that just you know a lot more people have had uh, have, have had the virus now. Mm. In terms of the issue of mask wearing, uh, things that will be part of our future. I mean. Do you think that we will have to keep wearing masks? Do you think that we should keep wearing masks? Uh, should it be part of a per- permanent part of a issue? I went out the other day and, uh, you know, most people actually in town were wearing masks. Now that we've got used to it, do you think that should stay? Maybe even for a couple of more years? I mean, certainly I think it, it should stay for the time being. You know, we're still very much much in the midst of this Omicron wave and our hospital numbers are at an all-time high. Uh, so, you know, now is not the time to be to be getting rid of masks entirely. Uh, I mean, how long we need them for is not clear at the moment. Um, 
I think there's, there's going to be a case for masks when, when cases in the community are high. It may be there are periods of time, you know, particularly during the summer months when transmission rates are lower and we can relax some of those mask rules. Um, so we really, you know, we really just have to remain adaptable, I think, and keep masks in our toolkit, um, you know, for the foreseeable future going forward. How much we right. need to use them is probably going to be depend on the situation at the time. Good to have you on, Professor Plankiora. That is Professor Michael Plank, who is a University of Canterbury COVID-19 modeler. Max, what do, you, what, what do you think? I mean, I'm now personally, I'm very comfortable about wearing my mask. In fact, it's kind of second nature. Uh, what about you? Do you really, uh, because I know some of my friends, colleagues, uh, they, they do find it hard, particularly with glasses. Yeah, um, it's true that the mask can, can kind of slip down. Yeah. Um, but no, it's it's uh, I'm used to it now. Um, and yeah, have, have got a kind of N95 mask. I think there, are, there have been questions raised, you know, in the last few weeks about whether the government could have done more to provide that kind of gold standard of masks. Mm. Um, but um, I think mask wearing, just like perhaps the, the vaccine pass system, is, is something that people have sort of baked into a lot of their everyday lives, I think, it's fair to say. What do you reckon, Janet? Uh, mask wearing baked in or actually you're, you're yearning for the time where, uh, oh, let's get rid of it. No, I'm... I'm actually quite con- I'm quite used to using the masks. I've got the N95s. We have a little wardrobe of them in in um, our house, and it, it's something you put on every time you go out. It's just as you say, second nature. I would be reluctant to let them go now, and even in the in the medium term, because I think that they're highly effective if you have the right masks. Yeah. 18 past four, the panel uh, in Zed National trying to get to more of your feedback around uh, dental care and driving because, goodness gracious, there has been a lot of it. Uh, it really touched a nerve with you. Uh, the I've been thinkings by both Max and Janet. Uh, but to this very interesting uh, discussion, this one, Parliament's Education and Workforce Select Committee has recommended the government consider making it compulsory for employers to publish starting salaries when advertising jobs. Another recommendation was that the government might think about putting restrictions on employers' ability to to demand pay secrecy in employment contracts through clauses that prevent employees from sharing details of their pay. Business NZ said they were supporting of a voluntary scheme, but they don't want it turned into a box-ticking exercise. To discuss is Craig Rennie, uh, economist from the New Zealand Council of Trade Unions Policy Director. Uh, he's a policy director, rather, at the CTU. Craig, kia ora. Kia ora. So, you open the paper, you go on to seek, you go on to trade me where you get the jobs, and along with the job, at the bottom, you see, you see the starting salary. Could you ever see that fly? Um, I certainly could. Um, I think it's a perfectly sensible thing to do, and it seems a very low compliance um, activity to to request from an employer. What is the salary that you should expect to get for this job? um, Most jobs that are created already have a salary or a pay position um, already in mind. And as the select committee notes, this would help address the information imbalance between the employer and the potential employee at the point it matters the most, at the point at which the employee decides whether or not they want to take the job offer that's on the table. But isn't this up to you? Isn't this a discussion that's really quite private, that is up to uh, you as the employee and the employer? I mean, a starting salary, that's part of the negotiation, isn't it, between the employee and the employer? 
Well, that, that negotiation can still take place. The only thing you're doing is you're putting on the table at the commencement a number which reflects the number that the employer would be prepared to pay. You wouldn't expect a business to tender or put, another, or put a project out and then be told at the very end what it was going to be paid for a job. You wouldn't expect to go to a supermarket and expect to buy a good from the supermarket and then negotiate <laughs> what the price was. Um, at the end. Imagine that. You know, yeah, you know, fair enough. Employers know this already. Um, you know, and and they and they do put the salary, um, you know, on the scheme, on, on the job adverts. Our panelists very shortly, but the, I just want to ask this: the, the committee said that requiring the publication of salaries and job ads would help address an information imbalance between you know employees and potential employees, employers rather. Do you think it will? Do you think it will help address that imbalance, Craig? Oh, sorry. I thought you were asking the panelists. Forgive me. Um, yes, I do think it really would. I, I think, you know, um, as well as, you know, it, it, by giving employees the chance to know at the beginning, it would help them negotiate. And what we know right now is that um, the people who really suffer at that point of negotiation are women, they're Pacifica, they're Māori, and they're the ones with the pay gaps right now. And what we really need to do is to, by putting that little bit of information, a piece of information that most employers already have, on the table, it helps people understand um, what they should or what they could be asking for at the point of accepting a job. All right, requiring starting pay to be to be made transparent in job ads. Agree or not? Two one zero one. Really keen to hear you on this, Janet Wilson. You're for it or totally against uh, it? Absolutely for it. Um, this could be something that can shine a light on the gender pay gap. I'm really interested in the fact that in places like Sweden, all private sector employers with more than 10 staff have to have comprehensive plans in place to combat those pay gaps. So this is this is a huge step back from any of that. It, this is just stating what the starting pay would be. Um, will, it, will it necessarily, though, and I'd like to ask Craig this, Will it force employers to lower their pay, their, their starting pay, in the hope that they can be seen to be good employers and, and give them more than just the starting pay? Um, do you understand what I mean? Do. Yeah, they, I mean, they, they certainly could do that. But if they were in a competitive field and the starting pay for one employer looked much lower than another employer, then obviously yeah. talented employees would head to that, you know, to, to that place. And what this does do is it stops employees from, potential employees, from having to become mind readers. You know, so as well as being ama- yeah. amazing, talented staff, they've got to be mind readers of what an employer will offer. And this just takes that off the table. Yeah, yeah someone says completely normal overseas. Completely normal. It's one of the most embarrassing things about the job market in this country that candidates are frequently asked, how much do you expect to be paid? Companies with good paying conditions should be proud to say what they offer. Instead, we play this mealy-mouthed game. What do you reckon, uh, Max Harris? Yeah, I completely agree with Janet and Craig. Um, as you say, Wallace, at the moment, the burden is on the person applying for the job to ask. And um, we all know how icky it is and can be to, to ask about pay at that stage. Um, we know as well that the gender pay gap is still a massive problem. The select committee said it's, it's stayed at, I think, 9% for a decade and that the pay gap between Pacifica women and Pākehā men is, is something like 25%. And I think the problem with the current approach of leaving it voluntary is what that does is it leaves the sort of certain businesses 
to go out on a limb to, 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 to take the step, whereas I think um, requiring this across the board just creates a, a level playing field. And to me, it's, it's not really a radical idea. Okay, so in that case, Craig, we've, uh, we've, 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 we've found the solution on the panel. Why aren't the government doing it? Well, it's just been called for by the select committee. You know, I mean, it's, it's up to the government now to see whether or not it should take it forward. I think it should. I think the, C- the CTU thinks that it should. And, you know, it's again, it's a really low-cost compliance issue. This is something that can be readily, readily brought forward. The one thing I would say is that we would have to manage, because Janet's point is a good one, there are some little fish hooks in there. If we talked about um, earnings as being part of sales, so in the UK, we have a thing called on-target earnings, or OTE, um, and that can be any number because that's what the company expects you to earn if you make their sales target, which, of course, could be a ridiculous number. So you'd need to work through how you did that, what, what base pay was, what base salary was as well, and how that reflected other non-financial terms and conditions like hours, right. or working, and other things. But, you know, as an idea, as something that we should be investigating further, I think it's really straightforward. Put the base salary on there, what a person should expect to get for doing the job, and it, it makes a whole heap of decisions and a whole heap of power imbalances much better. Okay, no, very interesting, Craig. Kia ora. thanks for being with us on the panel here. That's Craig Rennie, who is the New Zealand Council of Trade Unions Policy Director and Economist. Kathleen says, when I joined the public service, in 1986, my starting salary, the salary range and job description were all listed in the Public Service Gazette. I think it was called Transparency Supports uh, Accountability. It's 26 past four. A lot of uh, feedback coming through regarding dentists. Uh, I'm in my late 50s. I've just been made redundant. I'm struggling to keep the roof over my head. I badly need a dentist visit, but badly need to be housed also. Choices, some basic needs are now luxuries. But I am enjoying being able to listen to your talks on RNZ. It's a silver lining. Kia ora, and thanks for uh, being company with us this afternoon. 26 past four, the panel, completely different note here. From bird watchers to churchgoers to TV addicts to people involved in insurance, you're all considered dull, according to a new research. Instead, they looked into the science of boredom and uncovered jobs, the characteristics and hobbies that are considered stereotypically dull. Uh, but despite the negative perceptions, the universities at the researchers rather at the University of Essex says that the more boring jobs, like accounting and banking, are needed for. A functioning society, but is just is this just stereotyping, and why not embrace the mundane? So around the panel on this one, uh, how did you read this, Janet? Uh, is there any problem with being boring? Not that you are, but what did you make of the research? <laughs> um, I found it intriguing, and I found it somewhat judgmental. I mean, yeah. one person's boring is another person's interesting, isn't it? Yes. I mean, if you're a bird watcher, you are going to be absolutely fascinated, and it would be my job as a journalist, which was apparently on one of the most exciting um, uh, roles, least boring roles, which I would sometimes beg to differ. Um, but bird watching and um, data entry, a religious data entry worker, <laughs> that could be fascinating. 
Couldn't agree more. You know, it's in all fact, in the eye of the beholder. It's in the, it's in the, the eye of the beholder, the, the, yeah, the five most exciting jobs, performing arts, science. Ju- Actually, science journalism was the uh, most exciting job, apparently. Uh, and the five most boring hobbies were uh, sleeping, religion, watching television, observing animals, uh, mathematics. Uh, how, 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 do you, <laughs> how do you take this, Max? And do you do any of those five things? Well, you sleep, I guess. Yeah. Well, one thing I thought with the top five most boring hobbies is um, I wondered when this research was done, because I feel like during COVID, we've Mm. rediscovered how uh, interesting some of those things can be. And I know in the chats I've had with friends, actually talking about getting back to sleep naps and um, rediscovering old TV shows, um, uh, you know, and finding new TV shows is is one of the only things Mm. we we sometimes can talk about. And the other thing um, that I just thought in line with what Janet said is um, I always think people can make almost anything interesting if they're excited Absolutely. about it and enthusiastic about yeah. it. Um, so Absolutely. it's all about how you talk about it, I think. That's, what, that's, what, that's why I wanted to raise this, Max Harris, because, um, you know, do we all have to be bells and whistles every hour of the day? Do we, all, do we have to <laughs> go around and spark lights? Can't we embrace the boring? Uh, like, uh, not that you two do, but sometimes you may do. You embrace, embrace the mundane aspects of life. Yeah, I, I know you've you've talked before, Wallace, about sort of slow living, and um, I think again that's something that during COVID, you know, the long movies we're, we're moving back to. But I, got, I guess the problem in the research that I found when I when I looked it up is um, what that was saying is um, people don't even get a chance to prove others wrong when they're in these professions and when they have these hobbies, they're just written off. So I suppose that's the problem mm. more than these hobbies yes. and these professions is our sort of perceptions and our stereotypes about these people. Janet? Um, I also think that the, the top five, the, the, the list that they've created, data analysis, accounting, tax, insurance, cleaning and banking, all <laughs> but for cleaning, all of those jobs are highly paid jobs, aren't they? Cleaners don't nearly earn ex- exactly what they are worth, but all the rest of those jobs are reasonably highly paid jobs. Yes. So boring might, it might be, but, you know, they're taking the money and running, aren't they? They're taking the money. Uh, and w- actually, at this, uh, at this juncture, I'd love to hear from a bird watcher uh, a- a- and-, and push back on this research. Tell us why you aren't boring. Tell us why you aren't dumb. Uh, this on the research by the University of Essex saying that bird watchers, churchgoers, people in insurance and TV addicts are dull. Well, we beg to differ here on the panel. Tell us why.